Hey y'all, this is Mike Joseph, and you are listening to Detoxicity, a podcast about non-toxic masculinity. I want to thank you in advance for listening, and also remind you to push that subscribe button so you can have upcoming episodes delivered right to you. Also, feel free to leave feedback by rating and commenting. Finally, get in touch with me either by following me on socials, Tis Mike Joseph on Twitter and Detox Pod Guy on IG, or by emailing me, detoxpod at gmail.com for all y'all old school people. I love feedback. Don't hesitate to reach out with ideas for the show or suggestions for guests or if you yourself would like to be on the show. Thanks again for supporting this. It is greatly appreciated. So here's something a little different. Uh, Some of you know that I host a web series called Staying in Tune. I host it in conjunction with an awesome mental health nonprofit called Sound Mind Live. Hosted on their Instagram, which is soundmind underscore live. Anyway, uh, through Staying In Tune, I've been introduced to a couple of folks that have appeared on this very podcast, uh, including my boy Troy Ramey, and uh, I've also spoken to the founder of Sound Mind Live himself, Chris Bullard. Last year, I interviewed Jerry Hirschfeld, lead singer of indie pop trio Wax Owls for Staying In Tune, and we got along so famously that I asked him to be on Detoxicity. Uh, Jerry agreed, and he brought along Chris, who is the drummer of Wax Owls. So for the first time in detoxicity history, and certainly not the last, I am interviewing two people at once. Uh, Despite initial reservations about having to focus on two folks at once, it turned out to be an awesome interview, and they're both great guys. Uh, Jerry, Chris, and I discussed the Wax Owls dynamic, which is probably applicable, a bunch of big words, probably applicable to any business relationship between friends. Uh, We also discuss how they balance their burgeoning music careers with day jobs as attorneys. They're lawyers. I have never heard of musicians who are lawyers, uh, and I expressed my surprise very early on in the podcast. (laughs) Anyway, as the conversation goes on, we dig deeper to discuss dealing with anxiety and various other neuroses and how they affect our perception of ourselves. Uh, We break down self-care routines and intention setting whether in the form of New Year's resolutions or just making goals for general betterment. We also get deep into discussion about child abuse, recovery, and forgiveness. So uh, check this one out. Here is Jerry and Chris. Everybody, my name is Chris. I'm the drummer for Wax Owls. Hey, everyone. I'm Jerry. I am the guitarist and singer in Wax Owls. I don't know how fulsome this this description was was supposed to be, so I'm just going to say some stuff, and then you can investigate what I've strategically omitted in, in the deep psychoanalysis. So I, I, I'm a musician. I am also an attorney. I, I live in Los Angeles, California, the epicenter of all things COVID currently, and that's what's up. Uh musician slash attorney might be the strangest combination of vocations that i have ever heard in my like i've heard musician and many many other things musician and attorney this is a first so you know know, it's funny and right now it's a first and a second then because chris too is an attorney oh chris i didn't even realize that i mean anybody can obviously pursue whatever they want as as a vocation. I'm assuming wanting to be a musician came first in your lives before wanting <laughs> to be lawyers. <laughs> Unless y'all were watching like LA Law, or Perry Mason, or Law and Order at a young age. No, for me it was for me it was always music first. I very very briefly thought I had a career as a, as an athlete, but being five foot nothing quickly dashed those hopes. So music it was, and when I was in college i had a project that that looked like it was going to do something pretty cool and and as these things 
tend to happen more often than not, nothing came of it. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was lucky that I had a cousin who was in entertainment law specifically. And my junior year of college, I took an internship at her firm, but in the music department, she worked more on film and TV, but she was able to swing a inter summer internship at the music department. And I just kind of said, well, you know what, if I can't make it in this industry as an artist, I want to be connected somehow, some way. I need, I need to stay in music. And I definitely didn't think I was a good enough musician to be like a composer for film or TV or something like that. So I was like, you know what, this is my way to stay involved in music some way, shape or form. So that was, that was for me the reason. It was just a selfish way of still staying in music somehow. Gotcha. What's, what's your deal, Jerry? I didn't think I wanted to be a lawyer when I was in law school. Uh, I don't know if I've ever had that. Um, I mean, I wanted a job, but that was more centered around I wanted a way to pay off the debt that I'd taken on. No, I, I, I had done music for a little while after, after finishing undergrad and toured. And I also was a music teacher at an elementary school and a middle school and did lessons and did that whole thing. And I sort of had just had a moment they call it the quarter life crisis where I'm like, I am unemployable in every, in every like growth kind of way. And I'm not, I'm not going to get any younger because time. And so I was like, I don't know what to do. So I was like, maybe I'll, I'll just do law school. I can be employable because I can't think of anything else. And <laughs> it's funny that you said you haven't met too many musician lawyers. Cause I, I actually, I found that they tend to fall into one or one of two categories. There's like an inside joke with my friends who are still like musicians for a living that like, if someone's not a, a musician anymore, it's because they went to law school. It's like, ah, oh, I used to play. <laughs> it's like a last chance university. Like, I don't know, I have no specialties. This seems like a quick end to something a little more employable. So there's that crowd. And then there's also, are you, are you at all familiar with guitar brands? Somewhat. Have you heard of PRS guitars? Yes. And they're fine guitars. For anyone listening who has or loves PRSs, I don't insult for where I'm about what I'm about to say. But there's also like the lawyer musician who plays 80s guitar, style guitar on a like a $5,000 PRS and has a pretty sweet collection of PRSs. And, and they all have like the flame top, like they're, they're like super high-end luxury guitars and and the conversation with them is often just a discussion of what like new or, you know, fancy old electric guitar they've gotten, you know, in the past month or so. So I think those are the two the categories of lawyer musician that I've encountered. Nothing that any musician that would play a show would be able to play because it's too damn nice and too damn expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it can only be played on a couch. Yeah. That sort of makes sense now that I think about it having a, a lawyer just have like a, a too expensive guitar because he loves Slash and wants to like play Sweet Child of Mine on his couch and just chill out. <laughs> yeah, like in, in his couch or, you know, in his entire underground fancy recording <laughs> studio that doesn't get used for, I mean, I, I'm saying this with, you know, the requisite amount of jealousy. I would love to be in that position too. And this exact reason is why Jerry and I did not want to meet each other when we were introduced to each other. That's true. Well, that was, that's a good question. Good segue. How did the two of you meet? I, I was dating somebody at the time and she went to college with Jerry's girlfriend and she's like, Hey, 
you know, my friend, her boyfriend, he's an attorney, he's a musician. I'm like, oh, I don't want to meet this guy. He sucks already. <laughs> so, you know, she's like, no, no, no. He's a really nice guy. It, you know, it'll be good. It, I think it'll be good for you guys to meet, blah, blah, blah. And I'll let Jerry tell his side of the story. But my feeling is that he had the exact same reaction that I did. And we ended up meeting. And, and against all odds and against all, all uh, preconceived notions, we hit it off. And he sent me, I, I asked him to send some of the music. And the first tune I heard was unlike anything that I had encountered with musicians in LA to that point. And it just blew me away. And I was like, cool, I got I to gotta figure out a way to convince this guy to leave his fancy job at a fancy law firm to come play music. Wow. I feel like in most cases, that would take a fair amount of convincing like there was a lot of alcohol involved okay yeah. like yeah. hey upend yourself <laughs> uh, think about that for a minute <laughs> chris's story I, I i echo my girlfriend was like oh we should do a double date he's a musician and a lawyer and i was like fuck and 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 we met and hit it off and then chris listened to the music and he's like hey let's grab a drink he was very he's very subtle and coy about it we were <laughs> a drink downtown after work <laughs> And the rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> Too funny. What the hell is a wax owl? Okay. Here's, here, here's the thing. I'm going to tell the long-winded story and you can edit it out if it's too boring. We, I was playing with the, with the bass player and we had gone by Vagrant Fancy, which is not a great band name, but whatever. That's what we were doing. And Chris is like, hey, your band name's bad. Let's change it. And he said it very politely. I really didn't. That's so pretty much how I said it. <laughs> And then he just sent a list of like band name ideas and the one that the bassist Randall and I liked the best by far was Wax Owls. And then we're like, well, what does it mean? And it means nothing. It's just like, but then we were going to like make up just every time a new story, like, and, and make it like as highfalutin pretentious as possible. Like Wax Owls represents false wisdom because owls are like wise and wax is a fake version of like the real thing so a wax owl is impermanent and temporary and false wisdom but it really means nothing and and i kind of like that i mean like i've got a butt tattoo are you kidding or are you serious no i'm totally serious why uh, would you and i say this to somebody that has 14 tattoos why would you get a butt tattoo <laughs> i love it and and here's one of my best friends and I were, he lives in Hawaii and we were meeting in Austin for another close friend's wedding. And there's this, there's this sausage place called Bangers, which does like sausage and beer. And, and I'd always wanted a tattoo. It's been something that I'd want, but I never could figure out something that was like poetically significant enough to not come off as trite. And so my buddy's like, hey, this is, well, by the way, we're, my buddy and I are both vegetarian, but that's neither here nor there, it just adds to the sausage place will pay for you to get a logo of their, of their like front sign uh, tattooed on you. <laughs> you want to, you want to get matching butt tattoos? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. And, and I love it. I haven't regretted it. You know, I've had it for like or so years now but but it means nothing except for like the the story that we put into it which is like a stupid time we weren't drunk like it was it was decided ahead of time but just a stupid time with good friends and and so my my also pretentious but more genuine answer to what is wax owls is it means nothing except for what we put into it and and i like that about it 
I can respect that. I can even, I can respect the tattoo just because it's like, okay, here is a document of the fact that you and I are cool with each other and we're friends and this is just like some kind of cool thing that we did. Right. So, cool although, thing. yeah, I mean, I might have stopped before the butt tattoo, but you know, <laughs> you never know. So where did you guys grow up? I'm originally from the East Coast. I grew up in uh, Northern New Jersey, spitting distance from Manhattan and went to college and law school in Manhattan. About four years ago now, I, I made the choice to move out to LA. And I, I'm, I'm technically from LA. I'm from the San Fernando Valley, which is not LA, but you know, it's like, it's, it's within the county, but yeah, I grew up in the Valley and now I live in Silver Lake. So I, I made the, you're in your thirties and you're trying to stay hip. Is that important? Like as a musician, do you feel, do, does either of you feel the need to just kind of be hip or trendy or cool or anything like that? Or are you just like, fuck it, I'm going to be myself and people will accept it or they won't? I think for me, what genre of music you want to play and want to be a musician and will dictate that a little bit more. If, if we were trying to be a pop band, I think trying to be hip and trying to follow trends would make a lot more sense. I don't think a bunch of guys in their mid thirties trying to do pop music will be authentic unless you're trying to do those things. But for, for this project, it's, it tends to skews a, a bit more towards what our age range is. So for me, I feel like in this, in with Wax Owls, I can definitely be a lot more of myself, my authentic self and just do the things that I want to do. and, and yeah, not have to chase trends, not have to follow like who the biggest TikTok star is at the moment to feel like my music is going to be relevant. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I mean, I think that I, I want to be liked and I know that like we often have internal discussions because our social media is not up to snuff and it'll be like, oh, let's look at what other bands are doing. Let's figure out how to do it right. Let's make sure like every video, you know, I, I'm very unfashionable and, and my friends give me a hard time, rightly so for it. But like, let's let's make sure the video is not just like you in that same blue shirt you're always wearing and that same pair of shorts that's not flattering. So, you know, I mean, I, I think that there's always going to be an aspect that's going to be authentic. It's I, I think it's hard to not be somewhat authentic, even, you know, when you try to hide things, it's sometimes visible, but I, I might be failing at it, but I still feel that there's a, like a compulsion to like do things that create an image that that will be more likely to garner listeners and check the dots for like maybe if a management wants to pick us up, they're going to be like, well, how like what's what's their stage presence? I think it would be disingenuous if I said that like that's not there at all either for me. I'm trying to sort of just think about music that I like and bands that I like. And it actually does sort of make me wonder what's put on slightly versus what's put on a lot versus what's truly authentic. And I, obviously we always, most people want to always show the best of themselves to the people that, you know, are viewing them from the outside. And I mean, that's gotta be a weird balancing act for people who want, I mean, assuming your goal is to be signed and to do, you know, to tour and, and, and have that musician kind of life. Does that, that's gotta like fuck with your head a little bit though. 
for me, I think it's like it's degrees, right? It's a difference between okay, if I didn't care about this, if I didn't care about trying to do this professionally, I would put that video out with me in the t-shirt and the basketball shorts, as opposed to, okay, I'm going to put jeans on and I'm going to, you know, run a comb through my hair versus, okay, I have to go out and get like a Supreme t-shirt and like, you know, whatever type of hat and and look and, and fit into a very specific mold. And that, I think that's where the artifice comes in a lot more. I think there's, it's, yeah to me i just view it as sort of degrees there's there's a point where i'm okay going up to because to me it still feels authentic you know putting the putting jeans on doesn't feel like it's it's a big thing for me as opposed to like an armani suit or something like that yeah and and there's there's again there's a place and there's a time for all of that and i think that's that's where the authenticity conversation comes into place do you put that armani suit just to do a live story or 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 is it like okay we have to get dressed up because we're going to an awards event you know or, or something like that yeah that's that's kind of where my position is on it yeah i mean if someone were to tell me and, and i think there's degrees in like give and take if someone were to tell me like if you wore an armani suit every day you slept in that armani suit you lived in that armani suit you would have a career in music. I would wear that Armani suit, hands down, no matter how uncomfortable or, well, maybe within degree, but like realistically, I, I would do that. I, it's, it, it, it pales in comparison to the amount that I would love to be able to do this for a career. Sure. But I also think that there's like an image thing that's outside of the way I dress. Like if I, if I do a video that's gonna be a post, like I'll look at it and be like, do I look ugly there? <laughs> like, like are, are, are my eyes too blackened in, in like the in the, the the fact that I haven't slept so like there's 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 like the fashion component and then there's like a a vanity component like I, I don't I don't want like a shot of that I'm singing where like it's just like a weird angle and I'm like oh maybe I should like pay attention to the camera and it's a thing that I don't often think about because I, I I I have no social media until this band and the band social media is like but yeah it's 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 a thing that makes me very insecure and i'm willing to put up with it and you know it, it again pales in comparison to what i would like to do but the i i think if we were at an award ceremony every single picture that i took in this hypothetical award ceremony where there's not a pandemic where we're invited and where people want pictures <laughs> of us but in in this in this we're uh, in that world right now jerry right. we're in that world I would be like, am I smiling wide enough? Am I like standing properly? Am I like, it, it, do I look weird? Or, or what do I do with my hands? Like there, I, and maybe this is getting outside of what you asked in your, your question, but I, I think that just always the concern, like even if it's not a crippling thing, the concern of image is never not there for me. I understand. So that sounds a little bit neurotic. But that makes sense because you and I met talking about mental health. Yes. So I'm curious for the both of you, how does, like, how does mental health play in your everyday lives? Does it factor into your everyday lives? And how does it factor into your careers? Both as, I guess, lawyers, probably less so, and as musicians. Yeah, it's actually, I think... I've been sort of coming to a reckoning with it, to be honest, over the course of the last couple of weeks, uh, maybe a little bit longer, actually getting to a place where acknowledging like, okay, I'm 
struggling with some form of depression and I'm definitely struggling with anxiety and feelings of, of self-worth and worthiness. And uh, a good friend of mine, we were trading voice notes and he said, instead of setting resolutions, you know, instead of saying, I want to lose 40 pounds, you know, set almost more like a bigger, broader intention. I want to get healthier because if you set a goal, a resolution of losing 40 pounds, but then you lose 35, did you actually fail? As opposed to, I want to get healthier. I lost 35 pounds and I'm eating more vegetables and I'm eating more fruits and I'm not, you know, I'm walking 15,000 steps instead of 8,000 steps or whatever those things look like. And obviously that it's great to get the body right, but it's, you have to have to balance that out with, with getting your mind right. I think all of those things that I struggle with tie into everything. They influence everything. You know, it's the worthiness comes across as imposter syndrome. Am I actually a good enough musician? Am I actually a good enough lawyer? Am I just pretending? Am I fooling myself to thinking that I can do either of these things successfully? And you know, what are the safeguards? What are the things that, that I have to do to recognize, okay, what is a legitimate concern? What is not a legitimate concern? What is just like that little evil voice in my head telling me all the things that could go wrong that aren't actual things, even, even just interpersonal relationships. Like, you know, my friendship with this person is not as strong as it really is. Well, no, that's just some nonsense that my mind created because, you know, they said, okay, in a text instead of actually, you know, responding to something in simple way. It's a ridiculous thing when you verbalize it out loud, but in the moment it's, you know, the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back and all of those extra things that you've been holding in end up coming down. So for me, I want to set the intention this year to get healthier, both in my body and, and with my mind and whether that's going back to therapy, which is probably a good idea, but, and I acknowledge that that is a privilege that not everybody is, is able to go to. I wish it was something that's, that was, you know, I, I would say a right like healthcare, but part of this country doesn't want you to have healthcare <laughs> as a right. So, you know, I, I, I do acknowledge that I'm, I'm privileged and I'm lucky that I, I can afford to get into therapy. And, and it's about taking that first step, the and then to the last thing I'll say for, for anyone who is listening, the best advice I ever got was the first step is not going to therapy the first time. It's actually the second time because the first time is actually easy because you're usually in crisis and then you leave there feeling good and you don't think that you need to go back for that second or third or fourth session. So that's my, my unsolicited advice and my, my rant on, on mental health. It's great unsolicited advice. Oh, thank you. Chris, you can, you can raise your hand and, and, and stop me or edit this out if you've got any issues, but complimentarily put Chris on blast. I can definitely say he has the, as do I, but that Chris has the, the tendencies to overthink and feel an imposter. We, we had our band call last night and I, like after Chris and I were talking, I was like, what's wrong, man? Like, and he's like, How, uh, what do you mean? I was like, you, just, you, you seem like something's wrong. And he, and, and he, he was like, you know, I feel like I'm dropping the ball. And like, I feel like it might be irritating you. I was like, no, not at all. Which I, again, do mean, but it is, it, it, you know, that's, it, that's just, a, it's a real example of how it creeps in. And then another one of what you said, your New Year's resolutions were, which I thought was really great. And I am taking was just reminding people that you love, that you loved them. So our conversation ended with us reminding both each other that we love each other. Oh. Got that, you know, on, on, on top of uh, New Year's resolutions for improving yourself, whether it's through concrete things like losing a specific amount of weight or 
slightly broader, like being more healthy. I thought also your resolution to help others or make other people feel, you know, remind them of their importance was a really valid and worthwhile. Thanks. Yeah, I think, and I think us as men tend to not do that. You know, we tend to look at like, using words like love is this as this very monolithic there's there's a very specific way that we use it and and maybe it's a failing almost and and to not to get too nerdy about language but maybe it's a failing almost of like the english language right if you look at uh greek for instance there's three different forms of love right there's there's love between friends and and familial love and then romantic love and we don't have separate words for those things so you know we substitute words for and again not to say that other relationships, but specifically male to male relationships, it's like, oh, I appreciate you. Or like, you know, you, you substitute all these words because there's something feminine or, or to, use, to use gay in a derogatory sense, right? Which is not something you can do. But, you know, I'm sure there's still people out there like, oh, it's gay if you, say, if you tell your bro that you love him. Like, eh. but it's not, you know, like at the end of the day, man, we only have, so much time on this thing and i think it's very stupid and it's very short-sighted to not tell the people you care about that you care about them but actually use those words instead of dancing around it with this like neutered language i think the impact is less right like if i tell you if i tell anybody who i care about that i love i'm like oh i appreciate you man or like oh, i'm glad that you're in my life or even i'm grateful for you being grateful is powerful but actually saying i love you and i care about you is way more impactful to both people. I agree 100%. It's interesting you bring up language. I never really thought of that before. I I see it more, and this might just be my own experience talking, I, I see it more as a conditioning thing. And I, I do think, and obviously I can't speak for everybody, I can't speak for every man, I do see it as guys in particular are raised to think that love is reserved for the person you're fucking (laughs) and the people that you were raised by or your children and anybody else falls into a different category in addition to the homophobia that is baked into the average american male's upbringing which makes it uncomfortable for a lot of guys to say i love you to one another even if they do and you know having potentially a a language differential between you know i platonically love you versus i familiar you know and i love you in a familial sense versus i love you i don't know in a sexual i guess yeah i guess that doesn't really make sense but you know it, it, it it's really interesting to hear that perspective well, I think they're interconnected, right? I don't think there's, and I'm sorry that I cannot remember who who came up with this theory, but, but but essentially there's this idea that language informs society, which informs language, which informs philosophy. So there's a reason that German philosophers wrote in a way that they did because their language informed their society, which then went back and informed the language. These All of these things are interconnected. And the kind of philosophy that you can develop if you think, speak, live with German versus Japanese versus English versus pick your other substitute language, because other language structures don't follow the way that we do, right? So again, stop me if this is getting way too nerdy linguistic. <laughs> no, 
but a language like let's say Japanese or a lot of the Arab languages, they to way, way, way oversimplify this. If you were to translate them literally, they would almost sound like Yoda because of how the sentence structure and the syntax in those sentences work, mm. whether it's the verb comes at the end or subject verb order is completely different. So reading those sentences takes on different meanings because of how you have to interpret it. Whereas English, we view English as very straightforward. I went to school, very direct, very following a, a through line. Whereas in Japanese, it might be I school went or in, or in an Arab language, I school went, right? Sure. And because of that, when you're thinking in more, if, when you're having more complex thoughts, it changes how you think and it changes how you interpret all, the, all of those things. So you can view the same thing and say the same thing, but it actually doesn't mean the same thing and, how the, and, and it won't be interpreted in the same way. So I think to your point, language and society in America using English dictates how men communicate with each other, how they express their feelings towards one each other. We're all, I'm assuming of the same age, like if we saw, you know, two dudes in high school, like hugging, we probably think a very certain thing as opposed to how we think now, right? We've all matured. We've all progressed a bit as a society, a little bit where that may not look, or the reaction may not be the way that it was. Let's just arbitrarily say 20 years ago, let alone 40 years ago. And I, I think, I think there certainly two things can happen at the same time. And I think they're both valid, like the, the cultural aspect versus the, the linguistic aspect. And again, I can really only speak from my experience. And look, the reason I do this podcast, or the main reason, the first reason that I do this podcast is because for most of my life, I had these very narrow interpretations of, of what masculinity and what a man was is and you know i'm working my way through that but i think a lot of people you know look i'm fortunate to be a new yorker to live in a cosmopolitan place where there are lots of definitions of of what masculinity is i'm fortunate in a lot of ways to be queer where i see a lot of different definitions of what masculinity is although that's a whole other issue around masculinity itself but there are lots of people that are not fortunate enough to have the experience where they see more than one definition of it and they're all okay. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. This conversation, the basic points of, of having a conversation about masculinity and, and the reason I do this is to speak to the people who are totally lost and are like, why does this even make sense to have? Because there's only one way to be a man and that's it. And I almost went with like the Southern <laughs> redneck accent and that is so wrong of me to do because it's not just that but i mean you ever meet someone with like such a thick southern accent and they're like so progressive and insightful and you're like oh well that was a curveball <laughs> i don't know for sure that that's happened to me yet but you know like i jason isbell who i love and has like i mean i've met him a couple of times and definitely has like a draw and i'm not sure if had I not known his politics before I met him, and actually I think the first time I met him, I didn't know. And it's just like this big dude with a Southern accent. And it's just kind of like, oh, this is a redneck motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, he like started, was, was he, he was in Drive By Truckers. Right, he was in Drive By Truckers, yeah. Not a rednecky band, but if you don't know anything about their music and you're like, okay, so there's a band from the South and they're called Drive. Right. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you, but. 
but yeah, it's kind of like in terms of you guys' evolution, and I feel like, like I almost feel like a there's an East Coast bias in regards to the way I think about how others feel about masculinity. There is a how do I say this? Almost like caste bias or like you know financial strata bias, and there's a color bias. I think in a lot of ways. So I, I'm kind of curious as to just what your experiences were, you know, from even realizing what a man was until now, and and you know what your own journeys have been trying to figure all that shit out. I think so. For me, I, I like you. I was lucky. I grew up in a in a pretty cosmopolitan area. I was lucky that I had parents that were if not let's say progressive definitely not regressive and you know like like there's definitely photos of me when i was like three four years old in my mom's heels and coat you know like and and it wasn't a thing of like oh you know there was no there was no repercussions to that right like my dad didn't take the belt to me because i did that or anything like that but larger familial relationships there definitely were some regressive ideas there were some people in the family or, or if if not the extended family you know family friends that had ideas that were definitely that monolithic strong man of you know you just shut your fucking mouth and you handle your business and you have to be a certain way and you have to think a certain way and you have to not show emotions in a certain way so i think i was i was fortunate that the immediate family I didn't have that. I was able to be myself in a lot of ways. I was able to be sensitive if I needed to be sensitive and cry if I needed to cry and explore other things if I needed to explore them without any sort of negative repercussions. But I also think, I think sometimes we give the East Coast and I think we give the New York metro area sometimes a bit too much credit because there's some, you know, like, like we were just saying about never hearing, you know, some dude with a thick ass Southern accent be really progressive. I can almost make the same argument for some dudes from the Bronx, like with a heavy ass Bronx accent, like a lot of it's very much, you know, God is good all the time. And like, you know, very regressive, right leaning politics, but because they may look a certain way or talk a certain way, you don't feel it, or they might be progressive in ways that are important to them. And whatever that is, you know, let's say just arbitrarily, if they're, let's say non-white, they may be progressive in their politics as it relates to their own racial biases, but not sexual identity, not gender identity, things like that. Or, or if they're male, not necessarily progressive with women, you know, you can have somebody that's very much, and again, I don't want to speak to something that I am not. I, uh, I'll speak to it. You are absolutely right. Okay. You know, like, <laughs> I, I'm sure you can validate what I'm about yeah. to say, where you can have somebody that's pro-Black Lives Matter, anti-abortion. That is how pro, I grew up. So, you know, yes. Okay. So, and actually, that's actually what I, I wanted to almost throw the question back to you to see if you saw those differences, if you have relatives or friends from different parts of the country, and, and there is a different way of how they viewed these topics as, as a minor, as a, as either a male minority, a straight minority, queer minority, anything like that, because I find that it's not something that I have experienced, obviously, like I'm, you know, to put it, the people who can't see me on the podcast, I am a cis white male. Right. So I have my world not my worldview but my my experience and there are a lot of things that obviously I can't speak to when it comes to how other minority cultures in this country 
and geographic to your point, socioeconomic, all of these things are interactive. They all inform how we grow up and the biases that we form at younger ages. And then it's sort of on us. And this is where, not to tangent too much, but this is where I believe personal responsibility and is a huge, huge thing. And, and one of the biggest tragedies of growing up, and maybe this is specific to America because our country is so big, as opposed to maybe growing up in a place like Europe where you are forced to interact with other cultures, even if they are all white culture, it's still, Germany is very different from France. Right. I think I understand what you're getting at. And I do think a lot of Americans, and look, I'm only speaking to America because I, I'm American, stick, had their silos. And, you know, you go to high school, you go to college, or maybe you don't go to college, you stay in that silo, you get married to somebody you went to high school or to college with, you're still in that silo, you have kids, your kids stay in that silo, you die in that silo, and, and that, the monotony of that silo just kind of perpetuates itself, you know what I'm saying, for if, if that silo is not diverse. And for a lot of people, I mean, even New York City, look, when I was growing up, Brooklyn was diverse, but it was segregated. Yep. So if you went to Bay Ridge, you were seeing something very different than you were if you were going to Flatbush and something very different when you were in Park Slope. And if, again, if you went to high, you know, you might've had a little bit of an out if you got on the subway and went to Manhattan from time to time. And ultimately, I think that's kind of what, part of what saved me was hopping on that subway and getting into another part of the city and seeing other cultures and experiencing other cultures and befriending other cultures. So I, I was able to get rid of, of misogynist views and, you know, speak to people and learn about people that were not Catholic and, and so on. And, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, stepping outside your comfort zone a little bit or a lot. One of the things that I think is tragic that we don't foster enough and, and again, I can only speak like you guys to the American experience is we don't foster curiosity at all. If anything, we actively try and kill it. And I think that curio if you can be curious and continue to be curious, it will help stave off a lot of those biases from taking root into your foundation as a person. If you can constantly come from a place of curiosity, then that means that you're trying to learn about these different things. And that's that's where the personal responsibility element comes in right it's uh it's your responsibility as an adult to learn about things that are bigger than your just tiny worldview it's your responsibility as a citizen in a country in a culture to look beyond what's right in front of your face and what's comfortable in the skin that you're in and all those kind of things and i think whether it's the schooling system or whether Again, whether it's just a cultural thing, I, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to, to know, but I think we, we actively try to kill curiosity and, and view it as a bad thing. Like in school, if you say something, if you try to be curious in school, teachers, a lot of times they'll just be like, well, this is, this is what we're teaching you. You don't get to be curious about it. Just learn the thing, regurgitate the thing and move on. It, it is a combination, I think, of conditioning and Christianity, where everything is thought of in a binary fashion. You are either this, you are this, and if you're not this, you are definitively this. Right. You know, you are male or female. 
you are black or white, you are gay or straight. And there are a lot of people that don't realize or don't accept, may realize, but don't accept that so much lives in between the, the lines. Yeah, and what's frustrating, sorry, Jerry, you haven't had a chance in a while, but. <laughs> no, that's fine, that's fine. I, 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 like, I like listening in. I, I, I was thinking I was just going back to the question about like discovering masculinity in the context of what you said, of, for lack of a better word, how, how much things can be on spectrums or non-binary. Well, the, it's, that's the word I should have used. I think that that's been an ever-growing process. And I think discovering that has been really, really interesting, especially as, as of maybe the past few years. But I, no, I think it, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything particularly insightful to say. I just have my own, my own life experiences and stories. That's what we're here for, man. Um, so I love my parents. I really do. But I grew up in a household that was very abusive and, and there was a lot of alcoholism and, and a lot of that. And there was, I don't think much that would stereotypically land in the like, you need to be more of a man kind of thing with the exception of like, stop crying when you get hit. But it did reinforce, you know, like going to school and not wanting to, to let anyone know. And like that, that like holding it in, being tough. But it also, I think had, had a secondary, I don't know it's secondary, had another effect of concern about being judged. And that's both by like not wanting to talk about it to friends or other parents who might be able to help me. I remember the one time that like our carpool found out because I got into the car with a bunch of bruises and I was crying and and they were like, what happened? And I, I kind of unloaded and then I had to go to the principal and the police came and there was like a question of like fitness to be parent. And I was like, I need to hold this in. I don't want anyone else to judge me because I don't want to be taken away and I don't want my parents taken away. And again, I really want to emphasize, we have a very good relationship now, but not always. And I think the fear of being judged also creates things being very binary. And I, I remember when, when, I, when I first learned what being gay was, uh, a friend of mine was like, and I don't think he meant to be wrong. I think he also, when we were young, he didn't, he's like, yeah, you don't know until you're older. Which, which may, you know, I, I, I don't want to talk about anyone's experiences, but like that, that was just like, I was like, oh, and this was also, you know, the, the early 90s and like there there's just most jokes were gay jokes and i was there's like oh fuck what if i'm gay and like i don't want to be that because that that's that's the one that gets beat up even more gets ridiculed even more and it and it thwarts and i think even less extent it, it, it thwarts people's development of how much of a spectrum this is more about sexuality than i think specifically being a man but but how, how much of a spectrum it can really be and and you can be like okay, I, 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 I don't want to get picked on. I don't want to, I don't want to be gay. If I have any thoughts that are even in, in, in that direction, I, I really want to shut them down. And then I, I remember finding out that I, I was attracted to girls and I was like, oh, thank, thank God. I, I, I can't be attracted to men because like I, that I don't have to worry about getting that abuse later. And just overcoming that and that discovery on, on how nuanced attraction and interest in, in other people not, not just physically. I know, I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of framing it in physically, but you know, that, that there's things you could be attracted intellectually and run the gamut. But I think, I think the fear of being judged and hurt promotes a, had promoted and has promoted a binary worldview in me 
that is the thing that I try to overcome. And going back to therapy, that has been a, a godsend in talking about the nuance of that. But I don't know how much I, I ended up tying it back to anything we're saying. No, I agree with you. I mean, you bring up like in my head now I have like five different points that I, I, I sort of want to explore. I do think that it is ridicule that prevents, at least in our age range, because it seems to be a lot different now in some places than it was when we were kids or teenagers that they actually that a lot of a lot more people and i i guess i should thank social media for this are accepting of a spectrum definitely feels that way yeah i never heard that you don't realize until you're older part because i knew that i wasn't straight before i knew what straight or not straight was so yeah so that's, I mean, and I'm sure it varies from person to person. And I also don't think that a lot of people, you know, people maybe who were married for a long period of time and came out later in life, I, I don't necessarily know that those people are going to give you the real true story of how they felt. I want to, I, I want to maybe, maybe paint some more, more caveats on that story. One, I think what informed him was that he had a family friend who came out when he was like I, around 18. I, I don't, I don't know that. And I think that just informed his perception that like he came out when he realized he like, it wasn't, it wasn't that he had been holding it in and then came out. I, and that's, I think, because we were, I want to say third grade, second grade, you know, he just didn't have a, a perception. Sure. Uh, yeah. But then also it thwarting my ability to realize an experience what where I, where I felt I landed on the spectrum instead of just being like I got to be on one end right right and the other thing you mentioned aside from that that struck me and I at some point want to have a whole conversation about this is your relationship with your parents because I identify with a lot of what you said in very visceral ways but I am not I'm barely at a stage where I can be in the same room much less say that I have a loving relationship and I get along with. So that, that's a very interesting thing to bring up. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I was abused uh, as a kid by my stepdad primarily, but I mean, I've also, you know, been a victim of what I would call emotional abuse by my mother for my entire life. And I can, if I have to, I can sit in a room with my mom and have a conversation. You know, we text each other from time to time, you know, we speak on the phone sporadically and we used to do it a lot more often, but she and I have seen each other, I think twice in person in the last 12, 13 years. So since 2008 and I have, I've distanced myself because as I've gotten older and gone through therapy, I've realized some of the things that happened and just you know there's a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness kind of juxtaposed against the fact that you know she's my mom and i love her but i have not gotten to the point yet where i could have a one-on-one -on -one cordial conversation with her not even yeah cordial is baseline cordial and not feel as though i'm just kind of putting on a show because there's a bunch of other people like I would not voluntarily spend time in a room with her. Uh, and, and maybe you shouldn't. I mean, like, <laughs> I think that there, I would never advocate for people trying to repair a relationship with their parents if it was not something that they already desired or found healthy. 
And so I don't even know the details of this. All I do know is that my mom's parents got divorced when she was around 13. And I lived my whole life assuming that her father, my grandfather, had passed away before I was born. I found out, I think around the time I graduated college, that he was still alive and like not even that far away from us. And I was like, are you ever going to talk to him? And she's like, yeah, maybe one day. And, you know, this is since she was 13 and she was, I want to say like in her like 60, we'll say. I, I, and then, you know, a few years went by, she still hadn't. And I, it, was, it was Father's Day. And I was like, do you ever think you're going to reach out to your dad? And she goes, oh, he died. I thought you knew. And I was like, when did he die? And she was like, ah, a month or two ago. So she just cut him out and that was that was the end like it was 13 and whatever i can make my inferences but whatever happened was sufficient for her to be like never right so i i i, I have no point i'm just telling you another story and another experience because yeah. yeah. these are i think informative and in, in their own without having to like be like and the moral is right yeah i mean forgiveness is certainly a a subjective you know, something that's subjective for the people that are involved in the situation. Why, why is it that you, or sorry, would you want to develop a more normal relationship or is it something that can happen either way for you? Doesn't matter, don't want to. I think the ship sailed. Ship sailed. Yeah. I think if you... it had happened 15 years ago or 20 years ago, we'd still be able to, I think, have a good, re I also don't think my mom is capable of having a close relationship with him other than her husband. Uh -huh. So, you know, there's also that. Did you feel any sort of like external pressure, whether it was like friends, family, or like, or even like that religious guilt of like forcing a forgiveness or an idea of forgiveness upon the situation? By the time I understood the whole situation, I was already kind of past that. <laughs> I do feel sort of a familial guilt by not being as close to her as maybe I should be or other people think I should be. But there's also a large part of me that feels like that's almost like, you know what, I should just make a fucking complete break because it's not like she's offered me anything in the last three years. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's just like, you know, this person is in my life ceremonially, you know, as mm -hmm. opposed to actually adding or even subtracting value. It's just like, you know, it's like having a, a, a lamp in your house and the light doesn't turn on. Yeah, and you're just kind of keeping it there. It's like, okay, either either you replace the bulb or you throw it out. Yeah. But it's just kind of like sitting there. We all have that lamp. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, just the whole forgiveness thing. That's an, that's an interesting sort of sidetrack. I mean, and, and I don't know, having a sophisticated understanding of forgiveness, I think also ties into personhood and like i don't know with with, with in my situation because like through high school and you could ask any of my friends who knew me then i was like the second i can move out i'm cutting ties i am never talking to these people again and the main reason i didn't cut ties is because they were abusing my sister who i am very close with she's you know, maybe the person in my life that I'm most close with. And anyway, so I, I would have to like come home often because things would get so, so nuts and kind of took a bit of a, 
I don't know of a parental role, but something closer to that. And as I got older and had, you know, not that I'd, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fighter, I've never abused anyone physically. And I, I hope not emotionally, but that one's, you know, I'm, I'm sure I have and I feel bad. But anyway, after I made terrible decisions and, and decisions that made me be like, what? Like, am I even a good person? It, it made it a little easier to empathize. Like they, I don't know if they didn't want me, but they weren't ready. And that manifested and, and they have all of their own things that they hold in and don't let themselves develop as emotional and emotionally intelligent people, which is still the case, but you know, it's gotten better. But just kind of seeing them as like, damn, they struggled and they didn't have the tools and the resources. And one thing that makes it, better is although it didn't manifest in almost any healthy way they did want me to succeed and it was like all right well your 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 compass was way off but you know I, I i can at least recognize you didn't have the tools to do it right you did it wrong but you you didn't want to do it wrong i'm, I'm here for it and this is i mean this is stuff that i'm personally dealing with as well so i from just like an i completely relate to you standpoint like i'm i'm feeling this for thanksgiving 2 years ago like back before when we, we <laughs> when we could go places uh, yeah um, <laughs> remember those days back in the day uh, my so it was at my parents house and my uncle brought his dog and his dog like barked or did something that my uncle was not okay with and he hit the dog and it caused a big thing in my family my mom was so upset and and they're like we need to talk to them that's not a way to like treat an animal and my dad was like yeah that's just not this is after they left but they ended up having like a big family thing about it but after that my dad was like yeah hands are for petting not for hitting or like dogs are for petting no dogs are for petting not for hitting and i was like dad one time when you were drunk we had a Dalmatian. One time when you were drunk, you hit the Dalmatian on the head so hard that you broke your hand. Whoa. And 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 it was the first time he's ever really expressly and acknowledged it. And, and all, all that was said was like, I know that was not okay. And I feel bad about it. And that was like the most we've ever had a real conversation about like things. And it wasn't even about, you know, hitting me, but it was, you know, a medical enough thing that he can't like be like, oh, I didn't actually have a cast. But that 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 was a real moment. Again, I don't know. I, I have no morals to these. These are just experiences. And I think in his old age, he's, I don't know if he'll ever express it fully, but I do think he reflects on it. And that might help with forgiveness. I don't need that conversation. I, I feel like that happens a lot with aging. I mean, particularly as you sort of go from the middle-aged tier into the upper age tier you kind of look back and you're like oh fuck yeah you know, mentally making a list of the things you did wrong and trying to figure out how to rectify all that or at least make come to peace to a place of peace with it right it's a, it's a funny thing that happens when you start seeing that there's less pages on the calendar than there were before absolutely absolutely i <laughs> again like i the relational aspect here is, is, is very high. Yeah. yeah. So how are you guys just dealing with shit now? So Jerry, I'm assuming now that you already see a therapist. Uh, I, I have seen many therapists and in our email chain where I was saying I'm leaving my job and I'm experiencing more yes. stress and I should see a therapist. That was me. And I you need to see a therapist. 
I know, Jerry, you and I a couple of weeks ago talked about just kind of being in your place. You've got a dog, you know, it just being you and your, your dog. Chris, I'm not sure what your, your you know, home situation is, but dealing with, but what are your, I mean, what are your good sort of self-care regimens in and out of COVID-19? Before, before COVID, I think the stuff that, that really helped alleviate a lot of stress and made me feel, I hesitated to use the word, but normal, centered, let's go with centered, was I, I played hockey pretty regularly, which was a nice thing to keep myself in shape physically, but also mentally, it was good to have something where I didn't, you know, for that hour that I was out there playing, I didn't have to think about work. I didn't have to think about music. I didn't have to think about interpersonal relationships. I just got to, that was zoning out for me was that athletic exercise. And then obviously being able to get into a room with Jerry and Randall and play music. And I also freelance drum for other artists. So just being able to spend four or five nights a week playing music after work was a nice way to kind of get a lot of the the dirt and the grime of work off of the soul a bit. It's one of the things, and, and Jerry can, can speak to this too, I enjoyed law school, unlike a lot of people. I found the academic exercise of law school to be really cool, and I enjoyed that aspect of it. It absolutely fails you in preparing you for what practice is like, what being an attorney is like, what the day-to-day is like. And Mm. what I do is nowhere near what Jerry does. I, I do freelance legal work, so my stuff is a bit less intense. I don't have partners breathing down my throat at all hours of the night, and that's intentional. It's so I can transition into doing music full time. But you're not prepared for the mental stakes that being an attorney takes on you and the mental toll that being an attorney takes on you, no matter what part of the profession, you know, and I don't do any of the heavy stuff, like God forbid, it was like family practice and stuff where you're dealing with divorces and children and DIFUS and all those kind of things, you know, child protective services and stuff like that. So I don't mean to overemphasize what I go through because there are other people in our profession that go through way, way, way more intense and way worse things. Uh, It's why addiction and alcohol abuse and all these terrible things happen to attorneys at, at startlingly high rates. So all of that's a long way of getting like, uh, to me, exercising, being able to do music, being able to do all those things. It was a way of getting my mind right because it, and, and, and supplementing that with therapy because just having these outlets, the, the unhealthy responses that you think you're not you're okay, but it's because you're not dealing with it, right? It's like the computer, everything's in the back, processing in the background. It's not in the forefront of what's happening. And then at some point you're, you, you're, you've run out of RAM and everything comes crashing down and you don't know where all of these things came from. It's because they were all the way in the back of your brain working in the background. And then you finally had a moment to let your guard down and everything came rushing to the front instead of being able to deal with it a little bit out of a, t- uh, a little bit at a time it just is a, a deluge of of these things that you were repressing not intentionally you were unknowingly repressing all of these anxieties and this depression so do with that what you will. <laughs> i got to say as someone who has never played hockey before and doesn't know what non-professional hockey really looks like 
what's the fight quotient here what's what's the so i play old man beer league hockey there's it's no checking it's it's non-contact thankfully fights are exceedingly rare but i can't even claim that i haven't had a fight because there was a game that here this actually will tie in a bit so so mental 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 struggles all all mental health thank you so i went through a, a very very difficult breakup about a year and a half ago you know I'm very grateful. It, talking about grateful, I'm grateful for Jerry. He he helped me through that, and him him and a few other people. I was very fortunate to have people in my life, non professional people, who I probably owe professional therapy rates for doing the friend work and and really putting up with me and and shepherding me through a very difficult time. But it was maybe maybe a couple of days after everything went down, I had a game. And I was thinking, I went in super positive. It's like, oh, this is going to be good. I'll be able to shut my brain off for an hour or whatever. And as the game was progressing, I actually started having an anxiety attack throughout the course of the game. And I was sitting on the bench, panicking, having this anxiety attack. And my shift came up when the player, you know, my teammates came off. I hopped on the rink and there was a guy on the other team who was a bit of a bit of a dirty player, a bit chippy. And he threw an elbow at my head and he connected. And I just saw red and, and, you know, again, for, for everybody who doesn't know, I'm about five, eight, a buck 50 soaking wet, not a big intimidating guy. And I put him in a headlock. I threw punches. We got down on the ground. We're wrestling. I, I ripped his helmet off. It was, it was worse than a professional hockey fight because the thing that a lot of people don't know in a professional hockey fight, there's actually rules. And the guys talk to each other. So more often than not, it's not this thing that comes out of emotion. The guys will go, hey, you want to go? You good to go? And they'll acknowledge, say, yeah, we're going to go. And while they're fighting, they'll even say to each other, like, okay, I'm down or I'm out or something like that. If it doesn't get to, you know, obviously there's exceptions where I get knocked out. But there's constant communication because these guys acknowledge they're professionals. They have families. They don't want to actively permanently injure one another and the same thing with the with the officials the refs will come in and they'll break up and they'll talk to them and go okay boys that's enough that's enough this was this was really no better than a licensed street fight you know with pads and you know i'm lucky that i'm lucky in a lot of ways i'm lucky nobody got hurt i'm lucky i didn't get hurt i'm lucky the other guy didn't get hurt i'm lucky that the refs and the people who were in the league know me that i'm not this person that this was obviously to the point that one of the refs came over after he saw me having a panic attack in the penalty box because you get thrown out. If you fight, you're out for the game and you're suspended for two. They, it's oh, a, wow. It's a, yeah, they don't want – they want to make sure that if – and I think you have a two or three-strike rule. If you get into another one, that's it. You're, you're permanently suspended from the league. They don't want to encourage that type of behavior, understandably so. But one of the refs came over and, you know, just was like, are you okay? Because I was just – I couldn't breathe. I was having, like I said, having a panic attack. And – they did the smart thing. They separated us. They didn't know, obviously, if there was going to be any carryover. But when the game ended, the first thing I, you know, I took off my gear because I knew I was dumb. But when the game ended and there were other players around, so they knew I wasn't trying to instigate something, I went over and I just apologized to the dude. And I said, this has nothing to do with you. I was 100% out of line. I said, I thought you intentionally threw that elbow at my head. So I took exception to that. Like, but I took that to a place it didn't need to go. And we shook hands and walked our separate ways. And we played against each other, you know, a handful of times since then with no lingering effects. I respect the fact that you realized all that. I and mean, that takes a, a big person or at the very least a self-aware person 
I mean, look, man, we're doing this just to stay in shape. Everybody's got a real job. There's no scouts trying to find right. it. You're like, you know, there are guys that take this thing too seriously. And, and I, for me, I was embarrassed because I'm always the guy on the rink being like trying to tell other dudes to come down and be like, yo, man, your girl, there aren't even girlfriends in the stands. Like there's nobody to impress. Why are you taking this thing that seriously? So for me to be a hypocrite and take it to that place, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't go in and try and make that right in, in some way, shape or form. You're like teaching me a lesson. I mean, I play rec league basketball and you know, I am, I have not hit somebody since I was maybe like 20, partially because as time has gone on, I I feel like if I go off, like if somebody like hits that button, shit's going to get real, real, real <laughs> bad, real, real, real fast. But also just like, I'm not, I don't like being violent. You know, I've been in enough fights to kind of say I had that time, whatever. But I, I was playing and it's, it not only is it a rec league, but it's a work league. And, you know, I got, got into it with somebody. We didn't, no punches were thrown, but I definitely felt the, oh shit, I'm about to black out kind of yeah. moment happen. And I don't think there was ever, I don't, I still don't think we've apologized to one another. Actually, maybe he did apologize to me and I, <laughs> I don't remember, but just the fact that in that moment, during that same day, you were able to, to apologize. I, you know. I have a lot of respect for that. And I, I should, you should learn from that. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. Jerry, you ever throw a, a fastball tight, high and in on some dude, start a bench clearing brawl? Not on purpose. No, I, I played baseball. That was that reference. Um, and I was, <laughs> no, I just run around throwing things. At <laughs> I don't think so. I, I, I don't think I've really ever been a fighter. I've been, I've been in fights. I, I did karate when I was little, which I'm not counting as fights, but like I, <laughs> Took it very seriously, beating everything. But no, I, I, I don't have any good like bar fight stories or, or anything. I, and I'm thankful for that. Which everybody listening, you could see Jerry in his karate outfit in our Light Up the Way music video. Plug, plug for the band. Oh wow! <laughs> Check that out. It is adorable. Is it modern day Jerry in his karate outfit or is it like a flashback video or something like that? No, I'm like five and just like, I loved karate growing up and I really wanted to be like part of a karate studio when I was like three and no karate studios would let me because I didn't know my right and left or like, you know, have basic motor movements. So we have for this music video, Chris had the idea to get like old old childhood videos and we'll, we'll comp them together and it's it, chris made it and it's fantastic but i was looking through these old videos and was like i had no business being there of course they didn't want like i'm just staring off into space or like looking at what the person <laughs> doing. Like, i didn't know what was going on oh man so the original question about self-care before we got you know went yeah, off on sorry. a tangent no no chris it's fine yeah. what are you doing jerry music undoubtedly is is one of the big ones and since 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 covid and i know the question goes prior to that but i got really into learning how to record and engineer and that way i you know have still the ability to make music with people remotely we talked about this on the sounding off is that what you staying in like? tune on staying in tune sorry Chris, other Chris, I'll get it right eventually. Prozac, like uh, medication has been a lifesaver for me, which we can get into or not. I mean, again, I'm not advocating for it for everyone, but it, getting over that hurdle that I had for myself has made me just a much happier person. Um, it's a very real thing. I resisted medication 
I resisted medication, then took medication, then resisted medication again for a really long time. And now I'm back on medication. So, I mean, I, again, it's like get dialing in exactly what you want. I'm oh, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm getting blown up by work. So that's why my head's a little off focus. Dialing in the right medication for you is hard. Overcoming like the hurdle of the initial hurdle of being like, Oh, I don't, I don't know if my problems are that bad. I don't, I don't, I'm not a medication level depressed or whatever and i don't know fear of the side effects and all, all the other things like I, I i understand why people do it and i understand why people are reluctant and obviously not everyone even needs it but that, that's been huge i after after taking it i would say like two three months in maybe four months in i i didn't notice any changes it wasn't like because i had taken what's it called is it lorazepam is that like a take as need kind of that sounds right, but all medications well, kind of have that. I know. Maybe lorazepam is just the generic for Prozac. I my, think that yeah. actually might be the case. I, that's Okay, so that's <laughs> what I, I forgot. I took another one that was like uh, closer in the pill world to Xanax. That was like uh, when you're having an anxiety attack, you can take it and then you'll get tired. So and, like clonopin or, or one of those things. Yeah, you know what? I think it starts with an F. Anyway, well, maybe it doesn't. I, I <laughs> who knows? This is, doesn't matter to anyone, and I'm just pondering right now. I didn't have those effects where, like, I would take the pill and be like, "Ah, now I feel less stressed." It was just like four months later. I'm like, "Oh wow, I haven't had like a real bad dip in a while, and that's awesome." I I like that I haven't had those weeks where I'm like, "Well, I guess I'm." I'm not talking to anyone and we'll see about showers. So I don't know. It's been useful. Other things, getting out, whether it's going for hikes, you and I had talked to, not that I've gone camping in ages, but like that historically has been wonderful and I miss it dearly. And then just, I, I, I have a dog, Rick, and Rick and I go on hikes and I, I get so excited to show him a waterfall or like take him up to the snow. So that's been a great excuse and been very helpful. Awesome. And I guess my last question, one thing that struck me earlier in our conversation is I've met a lot of bands before and some bands have the whole like business arrangement thing happening and some bands are legitimately close and you guys definitely seem like the latter. Is it weird to do business with somebody you legitimately like love and care about? I think there's something that happens as you age into this business and as you age into the industry, you recognize that a lot of habits that you've developed when you were younger are terrible habits. <laughs> when you're when you're like 18 to 25, it's like, oh, it's all about the music. It's all about the brotherhood. It's, it's you know, to use the sports metaphor, right? It's very much that team rah-rah, you know, sacrifice the self for the team mentality. And there are a lot of positives to that. There are a lot of good things that come out of that, but you don't develop the way to articulate the business side of things. And because of that, every business conversation becomes confrontational or antagonistic, unless you're the type of band. Well, actually, no, this is, that's not even true. Even if you're the type of band that let's say does the Musketeers all for one, one for all, right? Everybody gets an equal share of writing. Everybody gets an equal share of everything. 
that can still lead to resentment if one person is doing the lion's share of, of creation anyway, right? Right. You know, why is the bass player or the drummer who hasn't written a single thing getting an equal share of me that's written everything? I think once you hit your 30s and once you've been doing this on a professional level, you under, you have to understand, again, to take that sports analogy further, that it is a business, right? Athletes don't really get bent out of shape when they get traded. They understand that it's a business. They understand contract negotiations a business. And I think that's something you have to learn through experience. And that's something you have to grow up and grow into where you can separate the business side of things. And, you know, I think I'm very fortunate in this situation, aside from the fact that, you know, Jerry and I both have a legal background, we, we can come from things and see things from a very, from a similar viewpoint in that regard. We both, because we care about each other, because there's a legitimate love between us, I think we both go out of our way to make sure that everything that we're doing comes from a position of fairness, comes from a position of love. And, and yes, the business stuff is important. And we want to obviously get to a place where, you know, we're paying the bills just doing this, but we recognize that we're not going to be able to do that on our own. And we're not going to be able to do that without the things that, that, each one of us brings and that caring that genuine care for each other is what you know makes me stay up till three o'clock in the morning finishing a video edit it's what makes jerry stay up till you know three o'clock in the morning finishing a mix or finishing writing uh, you know a chorus melody you know he knows that i'm going to be pushing just as hard as he's going to be pushing to you know in the best interest of everybody if i win he wins if he wins i win it's very much that mentality you know and you know, he's the least egotistical frontman, lead singer, principal songwriter I've ever had the, the the pleasure of working with, which is which makes a lot of these conversations go a lot more a lot a lot more smoothly. Jerry's blushing. You know, I have a naturally red hue to begin with, but you're not. <laughs> and I mean, does it? I assume that works the same for you, Jerry. Like it's just you know, similar sentiment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I I think we have a. There, there's so many areas that constitute the business of it. Uh, and, you know, I mean, not that many people even know who we are. So it's like very low stakes to begin with. Hopefully not forever, but, you know, at the moment. No, but I think I think that there's just a mentality of wanting to... If anybody here succeeds, everybody here succeeds. I, I And, and I, I, I like that mentality in the band. And I think it allows... I think when I was younger, uh, bands I would be part of, we'd treat it more like a democracy, where it's like, all right, we all are going to pitch in our opinions on this and vote on that. And there are surely things that like everyone should vote on. But also, I think we just kind of have a thing where it's like, all right, I, I trust your judgment and I trust your skill set. And like, you run with it. Like, this is this is for you and I'll, I'll do something. And, and I think that mutual trust also makes it easier to have it as like, a smooth operating thing just trying to trying to think of ways to make everyone's potential shine instead of uh create any bottlenecks so i usually have a slight framework of what i'm going to talk about during the podcast with my interviewees but the conversation is allowed to kind of go wherever it goes and i was not expecting a lot of the stuff that came up in this conversation to come up I certainly was not expecting to talk much about myself. Uh, I tend to not necessarily share much about my own experiences on this podcast, um, but that's going to change soon. Uh, that's another story for another time. Um, I certainly have uh, a history with abuse. Um, I will probably go into that at some point later. 
but the road to forgiveness has been a hard one, and uh, that's not really resolved yet. And maybe I'll get there at some point. Maybe I won't. It was really interesting to, for the first time, hear Jerry's story about going through something like that as a child and getting to a point as an adult where he is on good terms with his parents and doesn't seem to hold any major level of bitterness or animosity or anger towards them. Um, I certainly have a lot of respect and appreciation for uh, his story and his experience, and I hope to get to that level of zen someday myself. We'll see whether that happens or not. Anyway, uh, you can find uh, Jerry and Chris. Uh, Their music is available on all streaming services. Uh, You can find them uh, on their website, which is wearewaxowls.com, and they are on Instagram at waxowls. And I thank them once again for appearing on the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Detoxicity. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that you push that subscribe button and follow on socials. Once again, I am DetoxPodGuy on Instagram, and I am TizMikeJoseph on Twitter. Please feel free to rate and comment, and also reach out if you know anyone that would like to be on the show, or if you know anyone who would like to uh, listen to the show, or who would enjoy listening to the show, or who would get something out of the message that we're sending in these episodes. Uh, I want to thank Calvin Williams for providing the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each of these podcasts. I want to thank Jacob Block for providing the artwork that you see when you're listening to this episode on platforms. I want to thank Jeff Giles for the inspiration behind the creation of this podcast to begin with, along with Andrew Grossman, uh, who's been a previous guest on the show and also provided sort of a seed for this podcast to take place. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this podcast. I want to thank you for listening and please take care of yourselves. And I would say take care of yourselves and each other, but I would be stealing from Jerry Springer if I did that. But you get the idea. See you next week.